is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Jingle, 110% of the way, BroCamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro, how are you doing? I'm seasonally happy. How are you, Allison? Yeah, I'm doing okay, too. In this week's episode, it's the final in our series on investing sectors, and this time we're joined by John Maxfield to talk banking. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, despite a pandemic and a recession, the S&P 500 has returned more than 15% this year. But your portfolio may not be the only asset you own that has increased in value. If you own a house, it's likely also worth more than it was in 2019. The Case-Shiller National Home Price Index is up 7% over the trailing 12 months as of the end of September. That's the highest one-year growth rate since May of 2014. Over the past decade, the index is up almost 60%. So if you're a homeowner, that roof over your head likely accounts for a large portion of your net worth. But should you factor it into your retirement plan? Well, I'll provide some thoughts by highlighting the unique character of a home. It's first of all an expense. It's also a liability if you still have your mortgage. And it's a financial resource that is valuable, but not easily turned into cash. So let's go, shall we? Number one, your house is an expense. So housing is the biggest item in the typical American's budget, counting for about a third of spending on average. So, you know, that includes utilities, insurance, maintenance, taxes, all that stuff. Uh, And how much you pay will depend on the size of the house and where you live. Uh, And in case you're curious, if you want to compare cost of living in your current area to other locations... Uh, Check out bestplaces.net or NerdWallet's cost of living calculator available at an internet near you. Um, As far as your retirement plan goes, the higher your housing expenses, the less you may be able to sock away for the future. Also, the higher your expenses will be in retirement, the more you have to accumulate before you can retire. So if you're behind in saving for retirement, reducing your housing expenses is one of the best ways to catch up. It'll free up money that can be invested, and it'll lower the amount you need to have saved before you can kiss the boss goodbye. Number two, your house is also a liability. That's if you have a mortgage. Um, So if you want to do sort of like a back of the envelope calculation and figuring out if you have enough to retire, uh, you could start by figuring out your net worth, which you do by adding up everything you own. But then you have to subtract everything you owe because debt is a claim on your assets and earnings, and a mortgage is one big, fat, recurring bill. That said, carrying a mortgage is a lot less burdensome than it used to be. The rate on the 30-year mortgage is at an all-time low of 2.71%. One way to lower the cost of that debt is by refinancing. If you can shave maybe 0.5 to 1% or more from your rate, there'll be definitely some upfront costs, including a new 0.5% fee on many types of mortgages. Um, But refinancing might save you some money in the long run if you plan to stay in the house. Just keep in mind that refinancing often results in adding extra years to your mortgage unless you you either choose a shorter term or you make extra payments. This may mean you're more likely to carry a mortgage in retirement, and that's something Americans do more often these days. According to the Wall Street Journal, the number of homeowners age 65 and over that still have a mortgage is up almost 60% over the past decade. With rates so low, it could you know, still make financial sense to be in no hurry to pay off the mortgage. Um, but keep a few points in mind. First of all, carrying a mortgage into retirement adds another expense your portfolio has to pay for. So as I said earlier, the higher your retirement expenses, the more you have to accumulate before retiring. Also, higher expenses likely result in larger portfolio withdrawals in retirement, which usually result in higher taxes. So that's an expense on top of the expense. 
And the less mortgage debt you carry into retirement, the more equity you'll have in your home that you can utilize if and when necessary, which brings us to number three, your house is a financial resource. But the best way to turn your home equity into cash sort of depends, uh, well, it depends on several factors, but including how long you plan to stay in your current home and how long you need the money. Um, as mentioned earlier, you know, if you move to a lower cost home, it could be a great way to both lower your expenses and turn equity into a lump sum, assuming you have some uh, money left over after selling your current home and moving to another. You can invest that lump sum, just put it in your portfolio. Um, if you want to stay in your home and your cash needs are temporary, uh, your, your best bets are either a home equity loan or a line of credit. However, those do have to be paid back or you risk losing your home. Americans age 62 and older who need a longer term source of funds, uh, the option there might be a reverse mortgage. Uh, it can be taken out as a lump sum, line of credit, monthly income, sort of like an annuity. And it doesn't have to be paid back until the homeowner moves or passes away. And if the size of the loan exceeds the value of the home, the owners or the heirs don't owe a difference. Um, and re reverse mortgages really have been financial lifelines for many retirees because many people, for many people, their home is their biggest asset. But reverse mortgages can be very expensive. They have high upfront costs and the homeowners are still required to pay for taxes and maintenance or risk foreclosure. So factor all that in before you take out a reverse mortgage. So let's wrap this all up by answering a question. Should you count on your home equity in retirement? In my opinion, if you will definitely downsize at some point in the future, and it's very likely that will result in you netting out a lump sum even after you've paid for your new residence, then I think it makes sense to include that as a future resource if you're you know, using a retirement calculator or something like that. For retirees who plan to stay in their current home, I think it makes more sense to consider home equity as uh, basically a big emergency fund. You can tap it maybe during times when uh, your portfolio significantly underperforms over a long period, or if you have unexpected big ticket expenses, including uh, long-term care. Regardless of your situation, your home equity is more likely to boost retirement if you don't touch it before retirement. And I say this in light of a recent Bloomberg article, which cited evidence that an increasing number of Americans are using their homes as ATMs, uh, with home equity withdrawals back at levels last seen at 2007. And I'm sure some of those withdrawals are for reasonable or maybe even emergency expenses. After all, we're still technically in a recession. But using home equity to buy something that isn't an appreciating asset will be a drag on the borrower's net worth and retirement prospects. And that, Allison, is what's up. Now Bill said to give it to Hank, cause Hank owns a bank and he can make it grow. Well, we had fun, but now it's almost done. So far in our series in investing in 2020, and beyond, we covered consumer goods, tech, energy, and now this week, it's banking with John Maxfield. John, how you doing? I am great, Allison. And I love how I, I am the guy who gets to talk about like everybody's least favorite industry. But like, I mean, you, you need somebody who's willing to take the bullet for the team. And, and, and I, I will be that guy for you. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, we did already get a, I mean, I wouldn't call it hate mail, but we did already get some listener feedback on how they did not particularly enjoy the energy episode sector, not because of how Nick did, but more just the sector in general. So no, the bar is, I don't, I don't know where the bar is, John, but I know we're going to have a good time today talking banking. Um, so you're coming to us from Portland. John, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why I think you are smart about banks? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, 
I mean, my focus is not, you know, if you're, if you write about banks for like a, like a journalistic organization, you have to, you, you have a beat, right? You'll have big banks or banks in a particular geographic area or banks of a, you know, smaller banks, community banks, banks of particular size or focus. My focus really is the high performing bank, the highest performing banks in the United States. And let me just give you a sense for where that focus comes from and how I've kind of like, um, kind of, you know, selected the banks that I cover. I, a couple of years ago, took every single publicly traded bank in the United States. There's about 550 of them. That's about 10% of the sector. And I ranked every single one by the total amount of shareholder value that they've created since going public. So all-time total shareholder return, every single bank since going public. And then I just ranked them. I said, which banks in the United States have created the most value over time? And then those are the banks that I've studied for the last few years and just stepped back looked at them, talked with their executives, analyzed how they've done what they've done, and just kind of teased out kind of like a, a general kind of mental model, if you will, about the banking industry. Yeah. Okay. So I think that sounds like you're qualified to be on our show to talk about banking. Let's get into it then. Um, when I think of banking, I think I kind of think of two things. And so I could be totally wrong, but I think of like high finance, but then I also think of like the bank around the corner. So like I, I kind of think of Mary Poppins, how there's those stodgy guys in the suits. But then there's also little Michael with his tuppence. And so but I, I don't know, that's probably a bit of an oversimplification. But break it down for us. What is the banking sector comprised of? All right. So the banking sector is comprised of obviously banks, right? But the, the distinction you're making is, <clears throat> is an important and a valid one. And it's between investment bank and a commercial bank. What does an investment bank do? An investment bank goes out and helps underwrite stocks, underwrite bonds, does all that kind of high finance Wall Street type of stuff. Your Goldman Sachs, your Merrill Lynch's, your uh, Morgan Stanley's, those banks, right? But then the, actually what the vast majority of the banking industry consists of is just exactly what you said, right? It's just a little, an, an institution, that holds people's money, it keeps people's deposits safe, and then it lends out money to people who need it, to people or businesses who need it. And so they're, they're kind of intermediaries in finance because you have, in, in all of finance, you have a certain amount of money that's just sitting there that nothing is happening with. And then you have all these people and businesses over here who need access to money. And a bank just kind of like takes the money over here and gives it to these people over here. Now, let me, let me make two points about banking, Allison. So when you step back and you think about banks, you think like, oh, what a boring business, right? I mean, like- Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's like you just sit there and just like you go golfing in the middle of the afternoon with clients and stuff like that. That is a completely um, outdated perception of what banking is. And I mean, even your banks and just like your small towns, your community banks, because here's, here's how to think about banking, okay? Your typical company on the Dow Jones Industrial Average is leveraged by a factor of three dollars to every one dollar in capital that they have. Okay, and then if, if you and those are the thirty biggest companies in, in in the country, right? So if you go down smaller companies that are not on the Dow, they're going to be leveraged even less than that, two to one or one to one. Okay, your typical bank, and this is innate in a bank's business model, is leveraged by a factor of ten to eleven to twelve dollars for every one dollar in capital that they have. Now, why does that matter? And so what is that What is that leverage? That leverage is all those deposits, right? Deposits are you're making a loan to a bank when you put it in there. That matters for this reason. 
companies that are highly leveraged are incredibly fragile. Okay. If you're a bank and you lose, if you have to write off more than 1% of your loans through a full cycle, you're not only going to be one of the worst performing banks at a certain point, you're going to be, there's, you, you start to run into the prospect of insolvency. Okay. And so the really good banks, they write off <clears throat> a third of a percent of their loans through an entire cycle. So what does that mean? That means you have to get like a 99.7% on your test every single year to perform as a top performing bank. And so when you think about banking, that is a really good way to think about it. That look like, yes, they may seem on the outside to be these really boring businesses, but it takes an immense amount of strength and grace to run one of these things through a full business cycle. Man, you're just making poetry out of the banking sector. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think I tend to get confused when you start using words like lev- levered and leverage, um, and which is basically debt, right? It's debt, and generally speaking, debt is supposed to make me feel bad. Like I'm supposed to get nervous about debt because, as you said, like it's it's makes you fragile. Um, but I guess that's just part of the business. It is part of the business, and it's a critically important part of the business. I mean, banks stand at the narrows of commerce, okay? I mean, in order, we have the biggest, most impressive economy in the whole world, in large part because of the geography we sit on, right? I mean, like, nobody has geography like the United States, okay? I mean, we have the best. We have rivers. We have mountains. We have amazing arable land for our farmers. I mean, we have, but, and, and we have two huge oceans that sit on either side. Right. And we dominate our continent on the north and the south. And these are all wonderful things, right? Europe, like, is not, not bad land, but like, there's so many countries that are constantly fighting with each other, right? But like, we don't have any of that. So that, that's a really important piece of our financial strength. <clears throat> but another really important piece of our financial strength is the depth and the maturity of our capital markets. And banks are a huge part of that. If you have, if you're a young businessman or woman who wants to go out and start a business, but you don't have any money, like in order to start that business, you have to be able to get that money somewhere. And banks are the primary source for most people. And it's that it's those little instances here and there, thousands, millions of those every year, every place in the United States that leads to the power of this country. And so that's why banks are so important. I know I'm like a banking guy, so I believe in it all the way, right? But like they really are a critically important piece of the puzzle for our economy. I'm just wondering at what point during this interview you're going to stand up and sing the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> just like, <laughs> <laughs> you're right, America is a busy country. <laughs> you're right. I know. I know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I do love America. Um, anyway, all right. Well, let's get back to it. As an investor, you said you looked at a bajillion banks and then ranked them on strength. Um, let's talk a little bit about how, as an investor, you should evaluate banking companies. And and when you're talking banking, are you looking at both high finance investment banking and commercial banking or what's like your sweet spot? I mean, so if you think about the 550 or so roughly publicly traded banks, I mean, you're, you only have like a half dozen of those who are high finance. So you can just like take, for all intents and purposes, you can take them out of the equation. So that it's really, it's just your, your typical commercial banks. 
um, that I'm talking about. So here, here's the thing with banking, okay? So the, you have these innately fragile institutions, okay? There's this amazing book that was written about a decade ago. The title of it is Fragile by Design. And that, that captures banking perfectly because they are these really fragile institutions, but they're fragile by design. They are fragile on purpose because they are meant to take on all this leverage. They're meant to hold all of these deposits, right? And then to take those, some, those deposits from some people and give those deposits to other people. So that's the downside. And here, but here's what's important for investors is that if you can be those very small sliver of banks who excel, like your M&T banks, your Glacier Bank Corps, your U.S. Bank, those type Hingham Institution for Savings, a smaller bank based out in Boston, if you can excel, you can create an immense amount of value. And the reason for that is that all that leverage, what makes you fragile, it also turns you into a compounding machine. You're just compounding value, compounding value, compounding value at an incredibly high rate. Let me put it in this perspective. So one of the principal metrics you, you analyze when you look at banks and you assess performance of one bank versus another bank is called return on equity. And that is how much net earnings they have relative to the capital that they have on their balance sheet. Okay. Your typical bank, just like, you know, just kind of like an ordinary year for a typical bank is to earn 12% on your equity. That's just, that's nothing special. Okay. That's just like kind of a normal year. But if you earn 12% on your equity every year, you're going to double your investor's money every six years. And so all you have to do is just run it like that and just run it like that and just run it like that for a long period of time and you can create an immense amount of value. But what's important to realize is that it's doing that for a, and this is very foolish, right? It's, it's important to do that for a very long period of time. And so when you're stepping back and you're looking at these institutions as an investor, you don't sit back and say like, which one is going to hit it hard next year? Which one is going to hit it hard this year? You say 20 years down the road, when my kids are either in jail or in college, like, <laughs> and I'm looking Mine are going to be in college, by the way. I know, I know we <laughs> talked about where your kids are going to be. Yeah, probably jail, right? Like, which is a lot cheaper. So good for me. <laughs> You're going to have to pay for college, okay? The, you want to look down the road like that when you're assessing a bank. What happens in the short term doesn't matter. Well, the names that you mentioned, I mean, U.S. Bank's a big one, but like then you you said all these names of banks so far that I've never heard of. The Bank of the Rocky Gap. I don't even know. Like, I don't even remember what the names were. They're such small banks. Um, so are you saying focus on smaller banks? or Because I remember Wells Fargo used to be a real darling of the Motley Fool. But then Wells Fargo happened. I mean, <laughs> I don't even quite remember. It was like, it was just kind of like being jerks and scammy. And what did they do? I don't even remember. Yeah. But it was bad. They, they did a few a things. But one of the things they did was they basically opened up accounts for people bef- that they didn't even know their, the accounts were being opened right, up for them. Right. Because so the, the employees had incentives to open these accounts. That was That's just right. one so thing. Good. So good. What could go wrong? <laughs> can I tell you, can I tell you a story about Wells Fargo? Please Maybe. do. Here's the question. Okay. When did it start at Wells Fargo? Okay. When did it start this behavior? Okay. They claim it started in 2009. Okay. That first they started, they claimed it was like 2012 or something like that. Then they backed up and said, okay, 2009. And so you say, like, why 2009? 
And that's the year that this guy named Dick Kovacevic kind of left the picture. And Dick Kovacevic was, if you look at the era of banking that was like the late 80s and then the 90s and the early 2000s, he was like kind of like the Val Victorian of banking. That whole era, this huge figure in banking, this legend in banking, okay? And he left the scene. So this, by saying it started in 2009, it, it absolves him of responsibility. But here's what's interesting. If you go and you look at the merger between Norwest Bank, which is a bank, I think it was based in Minneapolis or up in that area, and Wells Fargo, when w Norwest, for all intents and purposes, bought Wells Fargo. I think, it was, I think they claimed it as a merger, but Norwest, all, for all intents and purposes, bought Wells Fargo. If you look at the first, because like the Wells Fargo today is actually Norwest. They just kept that name because it's a better, stronger brand. If you go back and you read the last annual report, of Norwest, they, it's, it's interesting. I can't remember if it's the last annual report of Norwest or the first annual report of Wells Fargo after the merger, but it's it is one of those two annual reports. They profile this teller of theirs in Montana. I think she was in Bozeman, Montana. I don't know if you've ever been to Bozeman, Montana. Mo oh, Montana's it's a delight. beautiful place. Bozeman, delightful place. Bozeman's a delightful town. Delightful town, but not a center of high finance, okay? <laughs> no. And they have this call out on the side of that annual report. Okay, where they're talking about how she sells like nine products to every customer or 10 products to every customer. Now, look, I came from Wyoming, which is just south of Montana. I can tell you right now, the typical person in Bozeman, Montana, the typical person in Toronto, Wyoming, where I grew up, doesn't need that many financial products. <laughs> and so you think like, wow. And they set this teller up as a paradigm of like what to do with this institution. And you think like this was going on for a long, long time. And it came into Wells Fargo by way of um, Norwest, and then it came into Wachovia by way of Wells Fargo. So you just think like, wow, this was this was actually going on for a lot longer than anybody had any idea. Good old Wells Fargo. So don't invest in Wells Fargo. I think that's what you're telling us. Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely oh, not. That is uh, that. If I were to give one stock to buy right now in banking industry, Wells Fargo is the one. Oh, we were gonna end. Yeah, I know, no, you kinda you kinda jumped the gun there, but all right. Yeah, sorry. We'll come back to yeah. that. All right. Okay. So let's talk about 2020. Uh, because the big headline for 2020, obviously the pandemic. And one thing we've learned over the course of this series on different sectors is that the pandemic didn't necessarily change things, but it tended to speed up trends that were already in progress. Um, but what are we seeing with banking? What's what's been what's been kind of like the trends uh, leading into 2020? What happened in 2020 for for the banking industry? Well, I mean, like that, right? I mean, so the big trends were, I mean, PPP was the big headline, right? Um, and so that was banks acting as a conduit between the federal government and small businesses to get them money to protect them. Okay, so the the, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, like if for all its entire history. So in a typical year, the Small Business Administration will originate about or underwrite about $30 billion worth of loans. I mean, a whole year. Well, they underwrote something like $550 billion. Don't quote me on the exact, but it's something like $550 billion in small business loans in the course of like two months. I mean, it was just like this crazy, crazy thing. And it, it, and now, you know, in hindsight, they found some fraud, but I mean, this is really, really in the margins, okay, the fraud, stuff like that. But the PPP program was incredibly important. Okay, so that's the big headline for banks in 2020. Okay, but to your point, 
one of the other interesting thing that has gone on is this digitization, right, of the financial industry. And so, you know, you have these people who like run fintechs, they've been like running a fintech for like, you know, 18 months, and they're like, oh, banks don't know anything about running, you know, customers and serving the customers and like operating this daily in, the, in this environment, stuff like that. And you say, well, like, look, fintech bro, how, like, tell me about your business. And he's like, oh, we've been around for 18 months and we don't make any revenue or money or something like that. And you think like, you know, like the oldest bank in America was founded by Alexander Hamilton. You're telling me that they could, they went from horses to cars, to telegraphs, to phones, to computers, to internet. And like, they don't know anything about transformation or getting through the, like, that, that just doesn't make any sense logically, right? They do know how to get through these different things, okay? But this, what's going on right now is substantively different. But this change that we've seen over the last year where there was forced adoption of digital banking, even by people who were like the last adopters, like we're never gonna like, get one of them apps, you know what I mean? Like even those folks were like, okay, fine, we'll get one of them apps, you know what I mean? Because we don't have no choice, you know? Like even those folks got it. So now we have this changed habit and these changed behaviors in the banking industry. And the question is like, what does that mean next? What does that mean next? And nobody knows for sure. Um, I don't think banking is going the way of Blockbuster. I hope not, or I'll be like, I won't have a job, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, but it's, certainly, it's certainly going towards that in that digital direction for sure. Well, I guess if, if fundamentally a bank just borrows money to then loan money, uh, I mean, that's always going to be something that's going to exist in this country, right? So is it just so saying, and now there's an app, that doesn't necessarily sound like a, a huge sea change to me. Well, the question is, is whether you you need even physical banks to do any of this, right? Can you, mean you can, people, can, can, right? Are yeah, we talking can labor? It, yeah, can we just cost? take a computer? Yeah. Can just a computer do this? Like have this money here and then give it to these people here? I don't think it can, and here's why. So you think about like a large chunk of banks in this country are agricultural banks. And if you're lending money to a, to a farmer, you have to like walk out to their farm, check the water rights, check the irrigation, if they're good at irrigating, check their equipment, check, you know what I mean? Like you have to go out, like see what happened after, after the hailstorm. Like you have got to go out and physically look at this stuff. And look, I'm not naive to say that AI will one day figure all this stuff out. And maybe it will, you know what I mean? Um, but we're certainly a long, long ways away from there still at this point. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about fintech? Because if banking's like old and stodgy, but fintech's like the cool bros in the room, like you said, and bro, we mean it in a negative sense, not in a positive sense, like when we refer to you. <laughs> Thank um, you very much for that clarification. Yeah. <laughs> what are what are the trends in fintech? I, what even me, what does it even mean to be a fintech company? Okay, so a fintech company is a technology company that their primary customers are financial in the financial industry. Okay, so couple different trends are going on in fintech that are in, that are actually really intellectually interesting and particularly from the perspective of an investor okay you have so you know the renaissance ipo index there's a, a hedge fund called renaissance capital and one of the things that renaissance capital does on the, on their website is they track the performance of ipos and particularly tech ipos and then they compare the performance of tech ipos to the performance of the market overall okay and one of the things we've seen this year is that the market's kind of done this and these IPOs have just gone, just shot up, okay, shot up. And that's not because the IPOs when they're pricing are pricing cheap, because they're not. They're not pricing cheap, but there's just been this explosion of demand 
to own those when those start trading, okay? And so you say like, why is that? And the, the answer to that, I believe, is that if you look at what's going on in interest rates, so interest rates are basically zero. For all intents and purposes, short-term interest rates are zero, right? And she said, like, well, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that, you have these huge money managers who have all this money in the bond market. And the bond market is much bigger than the equity market. I mean, like by like 10x, I don't know, like way, way bigger, right? And now you have all these managers who have all this money there, and they're not going to be able to eat, meet their pension demands. They're not going to be able to meet their endowment demands. They're not going to. So they say, like, oh, like we need to take a sliver of this and find, take it somewhere else to find better returns. Well, there's alternative investments, all that kind of stuff, but one and one other place is the equity market. But even just a small sliver taken out of the bond market and put into the equity market has a huge impact. And then you think, okay, well, we're going through this COVID era. The COVID era is all about remote. And it's about digitization. So you take this sliver here and you put it in the equity market. You don't just put it in the equity market. You put it in tech. You put it in tech companies. And so that's a huge trend that's going on in, in, in kind of in the fintech world. Let me just leave one last thought on the fintech thing, though, okay? Fin, yes, technology is important. The industry is going in that direction. But here's the thing. And Bill Demchak, the CEO of PNC, put it this way. I think it was on their second quarter call, their third quarter call. He said, look, like, all y'all fintech getting all excited about fintech, just remember this. A bank like us, and they spend, I don't know, a billion dollars, a couple billion dollars a year on technology. Like we could recreate what any of those companies do in a week. And JP Morgan and Bank of America, they're bigger and they could do it even faster. So like, yes, fintech is important. It's this thing, but it's also kind of a cliche. Yeah. They're like, we'll just eat you for breakfast. And then all, all you bros. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right, let's talk about the year that's coming up, 2021, and maybe some trends that you're watching. Um, because I feel, uh, and I, I talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the show, uh, nervous about headlines like, uh, let's see, $10 trillion corporate debt bomb is waiting to explode. That's a fun headline. Uh, there's another fun headline about basically um, consumer debt is, I don't know, it's kind of been a weird year for, weird year for consumer debt. Uh small banks are doing well, but then there's these ideas of just like global debt, woof, record highs. I'm nervous. Should I be nervous? Are you nervous? What are you watching next year? Okay. So, uh, so don't get nervous until interest rates go up with corporate debt. When interest okay. rates go up, corporate debt, then start to get nervous. Okay. Cause then it gets, it could get too expensive for them to maintain it. Right. For the, for the facility. Okay. So first of all, nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. So, right. I don't know. I have no clue. Okay. But like you asked me to opine, so I'm going to opine. Okay. Fine, please. The two, two things to watch first, to your point, credit, right? Now here's the important thing about credit. There's this new accounting standard in the banking industry called CECL, current expected credit losses. And so what that means is that as soon as something ha happens in the banking industry, some sort of weird thing happens where they think credit loss, there, there's going to be losses in their loan portfolio. They have to record all of those losses immediately. On their, on their income statement. They do that by taking a provision for loan loss. It's basically an expense on your income statement. You're just taking that money and you're putting it off to the side, okay? Preparing for those loans to go bad, okay? So then when they do go bad, you're not actually eating into the capital of your bank and threatening your solvency, okay? So 
all these banks have adopted, well, not all of the banks, but a lot of large banks in particular have already adopted CECL at the beginning of this year. Smaller ones have, have to adopt it over the in, in increments over the next few years. Okay. That means that these, particularly these big banks that most investors are familiar with, have already, for the assuming that they're relatively accurate in their expectations for loan losses, they've already taken those losses. Okay. So now you will see an increase in losses, but it's not going to hurt their performance because they've already set that, side, that money aside. Okay. So there's a credit thing. Okay. And the other thing is that as we come out of this, as long as we come out of this, like this year, which, you know, with this vaccine, the news and the timing of this vaccine, it looks like we're going to. Like the economy, we don't know. But, and if they get more fiscal stimulus, like it could just shoot up. Right. So from credit perspective, like it's a thing to watch. I personally, this is probably like famous last words. I personally not overly worried about it. Okay. But the thing, the other thing that is very noticeable, very interesting with, from the banking perspective is like, what does it look like for banks to operate in a basically no zero interest rate environment for an extended period of time? We just like in all of the history of banking, as far as I'm aware, going back as far as you can look in the United States, like, it's just, just, we've just never dealt with a low interest rate environment like this. And what that means is that banks, you know, they make money by lending money out, right? They borrow money at a low interest rate, they lend it out at a higher interest rate. And that's how they make the majority of their, their income. Well, when you know, the big interest rates, government mandated interest rates are low, it means they earn less on the money that they lend out. And so they're just not going to be as profitable, you know? So the banks have got to like offset that with efficiency gains. All right. So then you already gave us one stock recommendation, Wells Fargo. Let's uh, talk a bit more about Wells Fargo, uh, maybe some other stocks that you'd recommend. Okay. The only thing I'll say about Wells Fargo is that it's super cheap. Okay. And it, it, it ain't going anywhere. All right. It ain't going anywhere. And they got Charlie Scharf in there, who is one of Jamie, Di Jamie Dimon's protégés. It's like, and he's totally swapped out the whole executive team. And he's serious about getting this taken care of. They cut their dividend way down from like 51 cents down to 10 cents. Okay, like the pain has been had at Wells Fargo. Okay, like, yeah, like they did some bad things in the past. This is a, diff this is a different organization at this point. All right. And it's really cheap. And it's not risky. Okay. <laughs> Ain't nothing going to happen to Wells Fargo. I mean, again, famous last words, but like it's the fourth largest bank in this country. It is too big for anything to happen. The regulators are watching it too closely for it to be doing silly stuff with its credit portfolio. So there's a built-in like risk management device there from the perspective of an investor. Okay. And I'm heavily long on Wells Fargo. I went in long on them in, on March, in March. Okay. So Wells Fargo. But the other, the other thing to keep in mind is that when you're looking at these investments is that skin in the game matters. How people lend their own money differently than they lend other people's money. It's the difference between how you treat a car that you rent and how you treat your car that you own. Okay. The same exact thing with running a bank. Okay. So when you look out there, pick banks where the people who run it have a ton of skin in the game. Two examples, Great Southern Bank Corps, a bank based in Springfield, Missouri. They're one of, you know, that list I was talking about at the very beginning of that top performing banks of all time in terms of value creation. I think they're like seventh on that list. Okay. It's like kind of like an old school bank. Okay. But the, but the, the, the family that runs it, they just like, they ain't going to let anything happen to it. Okay. Because like all of their wealth is in it and all of their like nieces and nephews wealth and cousins wealth and brothers and sisters wealth and parents wealth. Like if something were to happen, they couldn't go to the family reunion. That is what you want. All right. You want that social pressure. Okay. 
So it's Great Southern is a good one to keep an eye on. Another one is Kingdom Institution for Savings. It's about a two and change billion dollar bank in the Boston area run by the Goggin family. Patrick Goggin, the president of that bank, I mean, he's like one of the smartest people in the entire banking industry. And they got, they own something like 40%. He and his extended family own something like 40% of that bank. And it has just been an amazing performer since that family took it over in the early 90s. So that's another one that like, I feel very comfortable about as an investor. So you've mentioned the list that you did and all the research you did into banks. I have a feeling some of our listeners are going to be wondering, how do I see this list? Is that something that you just keep like, keep in a vault in your house, or is this something that research that you published, or or is this just your own personal edification research? I'm trying to think if I've published published it anywhere. I've put it on my Twitter feed. Oh, okay. You can, like there dig you it go. up on my Twitter feed. It's it's in there. Um, and yeah. who are you on Twitter? Maxfield on Banks. I know it's like the most original ever, but it is what it is. That's okay. Do you feel weird when you tweet about not banks? We're like, stay on. I, I, I got to be honest. Fortunately for listeners, if anybody does go and look at, I don't tweet very much, so it won't take them very long to scroll down. So. <laughs> yeah. Go. Oh, wonderful. All right. So it's been an interesting year. Um, if you look at like the financial sector, it's the worst performing sector this year, down about 6%, not nearly as bad as energy, which is down almost 30%. Um, but is that because of low rates or because of this increased concern that all these loans might go bad and that's what investors are concerned about? It's a function of both, I think, right? Because like both of them have implications for earnings and stock valuations in large, I mean, they're a function of a lot of things, right? But in large part, they're a function of your profitability and your earnings. Um, and so there's just a lot of like, I mean, I, I don't know about YouTube, but this whole talk about like, oh, there's all this uncertainty. There's always uncertainty, right? The difference now is that the range of uncertainty is a lot wider. Although as this vaccine, we get closer and closer to this vaccine, that range is narrowing, right? And so you can get more and more comfortable with a sector like banking where you have, aside from interest rates, which are going to stay low for a while here, right? Um, the credit losses, as soon, as the closer and closer we get to that vaccine, the smaller and smaller those credit losses are going to get because the economy is going to open up and then businesses will make money and then they'll be able to pay their loans. So, so that that I, I think it's a function of those two things. But what if I believe in a doomsday scenario where there's this tidal wave of debt and everyone's defaulting left and right? And pay eighteen grand for some Bitcoin or whatever it's going to be right now. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, can you see? <laughs> uh, all right, John. Well, we should probably call it there. Um, you know, it's bad when Allison starts singing. So, thank you so much for joining us. You want to come back again someday and talk about something? else on banks i don't know what else can you talk I don't about? Know. like you're gonna like end up with zero viewers by the end of this but <laughs> listen if you ever want me back on all you gotta do is let me know and i'm happy to be here sounds good thank you so much and here comes a disclaimer as always the motley fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here well that's the show it's edited convivially by rick engdahl our email is answers at fool.com. We do have a mailbag episode to finish out the year, so get those questions in ASAP. 
For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.